You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. This program is a proud member of Univoz. Unified, unique voices. Learn more at univozpods.net. Hey, what's up? It's Steve Rodriguez of Talk About Gay Sex. Happy summertime. Do me a favor and go to our website, tagspodcast.com, T-A-G-S podcast.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter, get updates, see my blog, and check out pictures. So enjoy another episode of Talk About Gay Sex. And when you're done, go to our website, tagspodcast.com. What's going on? You are listening to Talk About Gay Sex. I am your host, Steve Rodriguez. Uh, Really excited today to be talking to psychologist and sexologist, Justin Dewey. Um, Did I say that right, Justin? Uh, Technically, no one even in my family knows how to pronounce it, but we normally say Dewey. Dewey. Justin Dewey. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Justin Duvey is an award-winning psychologist, sexologist, columnist, and author working in private practice in central London. He offers practical, tailored-in-person and online counseling and psychotherapy for individuals, couples, and groups. The main body of his work is in the area of addiction treatment, sex relationship matters, chemsex, self-esteem, body image, anxiety disorders, depression, existential issues and more justin welcome to the show how are you i'm great thanks for having me here absolutely you're in london i'm in new york so there's a little time difference but uh we made it work thank goodness yes exactly well you know new york is our sister city so it's not that far away really there you go yes and we love london so um wonderful um I'd like to get right into it. I read several Mm -hmm. of your um, articles, and um, I was struck by one of your books that you wrote, um, which we'll get into a little bit later about chemsex. Okay. Sure. Um, But one of your articles that you wrote, and I just jotted it down because I sort of related to it, you write... uh, Sex and relationship matters can be uncomfortable topics for many men. Uh, You write, I can really relate to this myself. When I was younger and first learning about sex, I would faint at the sex education films that were shown in health class. I was that kid that couldn't even look at pictures of anatomy without feeling nervous and sick to my stomach. I would have, I would have become a psychiatrist, but the idea of having, uh, having to dissect a cadaver in medical school was out of the question for me. So you, I chose, you write, I chose to become a psychologist and sexologist instead. It's, it's far less messy. And I can totally relate to that because I can remember when mm-hmm. um, being a young kid, they ha- uh, started talking about, you know, sex ed. And I remember feeling ner- like, 
like I was gonna faint myself. I had to look outside into the window, out to the park, mm-hmm. anything to feel like I wasn't gonna throw up. And I don't know what it was, but I re- totally related to that. Can you talk a little bit more yeah. about that period and and how you ended up where you ended up? <laughs> yeah, not a problem. It's kind of confusing for me still. Uh, so I'm a child of the '80s, and I can remember back that there was, and I don't know the name of the video, and it's probably been suppressed because it traumatized me. But there was this super energetic guy that wore this really disgusting bodysuit that had bones and muscles on it. Do you know what I'm talking about? I think I do. Yes, I looked away a lot, so I might not remember most of it. But yes, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and it was supposed to be educational, but I was so deeply uncomfortable with that. And I can remember being shown, and I think it was in third grade, there was this video of an open heart surgery. And it was one which this guy in that really hideous outfit was actually showing us. And I remember just getting so sick to my stomach. And then videos of vocal cords in action as well, too. And then when it came to puberty, and we had to learn about the gonads and ovaries and everything else that actually happened. The I would have gone. There was just, <laughs> yeah, there was just no way that I was going to be able to do it. And that was coupled with the really unhelpful advice that I'd get from my mother on the way to elementary school out of nowhere with my sister in the backseat. My mother would go, well, um, you know that, you know, there's nothing wrong with sex. And I'm like, oh, my God, Mom, what are you talking about? <laughs> I didn't really have, I think, the best type of sex education. And what made it even harder for me at that time when I look back, Steve, is just thinking about the lack of context that I have. So, you know, this past weekend I was shooting a TV show and I was talking to a girl that was dealing with some sexual problems and trying to help her to understand where it actually comes from. Well, either we grow up in a household where we know sex doesn't exist, and that was absolutely my household, or sex is evil. Again, that was also messages that I received growing up about sex, or that sex is the answer to absolutely everything. That was definitely not my household or a combination of the aforementioned, and that's even more confusing for people. So my own sort of journey really is that I didn't really know what sex was. I didn't know what gay was either. I knew it was a word in the Flintstone songs, and I knew that I kind of liked the cartoon, but I wasn't a huge fan of it just because I found, you know, Fred Rubble uh, really annoying. Right. People started using that word for me in school. I was like, you know, why are they saying that like I'm a character off of the Flintstones? It doesn't make any sense. And I really felt like I was the last person alive to realize that actually I was gay. So to go from a point where I'm getting grossed out with open heart surgery videos to fainting with vocal cords or to not being able to handle sex ed class, I actually chose to write a paper on what would happen if an asteroid were to hit earth would we go through some sort of mass extinction i opted for that as opposed to actually talking about sex when i was in middle school that's how uncomfortable it was for me wow and to a point where today you know if you were in my office here i've got books on fisting and books on fetishes and i write for alpha tribe magazine which of course is a kink magazine and i just talk about all sorts of crazy things that if i would go back and talk to that little boy version of me he would probably faint at the mere mention of these things. So really, I have no idea how I got from a point where it was so deeply uncomfortable, where nobody in my family talked about sex, 
to getting paid to talk about it and to doing your podcast today. So I'm even really amazed. And I make sure that I speak so openly about my own personal transition just because so many of the people that I talk to are so deeply humiliated and uncomfortable and overly apologetic when it comes to sex. I, and I really relate to that. Right, right. And I mean, I think you maybe had a little bit more um, education as mm-hmm. a kid than I did because my parents didn't really oh, yeah. talk about it other than my father uh-huh. giving me a book. I don't know if you remember the book, The Joy of Sex. Um, no, oh, I do. I have the uh, Joy of Gay Sex on my shelf right next to me, actually, but I never got the Joy of Sex. Yeah, I wish I got the Joy of Gay Sex, but my father handed me the, the, the original hetero version of it, yeah. and I just uh, remember flipping through that or, you know, National Geographic for porn, uh-huh. making up my own porn, and that was the yeah. extent of that. Um, but yeah, it, it, it is crazy, and um, I mean, one of the things... Um, you write about mm-hmm. or you have written and I'd love for yeah. you to extrapolate on is you say, I have noticed an unhealthy change and this is out of context, but it's one of your articles. Yeah. I have noticed okay. an unhealthy change in the gay community over the course of my career. You write, And I'm convinced yeah. that this is a growing problem. I am, I am seeing an increase in the number of men who are confused about their morals and values or believe mm-hmm. that holding them means they are, uncool or backwards. Can you talk a little bit about yep. what you were referring to in, in that article? <laughs> I see about seven to eight people a day and I've talked about that all day today. So I'm okay, very happy to go over one it more, again. One more client here, sorry. One more, one more time for <laughs> yeah. everybody. That's, that's another problem. Uh, it, it is a big problem. And, you know, I've worked in America and I've worked in Europe and as you know, I'm currently practicing in London. And there's a big difference between the psychology of a North American gay and a European gay. Really? And on either side, absolutely. On the North American gay has a tremendous amount of internalized homophobia, but actually that is incorrectly labeled. And I wish people would actually stop talking about it because a phobia is an irrational fear. And we've gotten sold on this idea that, you know, the reason that we have problems in our relationships is that we have an irrational fear about having same-sex attractions. And that just sounds stupid, even as I say it aloud. So we've gotten sold on a bunch of rubbish, basically, that doesn't actually adequately fit what is really going on. And the truth is, is that on either side of the Atlantic, When we talk about the gay population as a whole, we're talking about a population of men who are traumatized. So whether we directly or indirectly receive messages about our sexuality or the way in which we express our sense of masculinity over and over and over and over again throughout the past, well, 14 plus years of doing this, I talk to men about experiences which are very painful in terms of coming out, fears about how the community is going to judge them, or there was a complete of any affirming messages whatsoever. You know, none of the men that I spoke to today, none of them when I asked them, well, how did you learn about sex? They said, well, you know, I went to Catholic school or I went to public school and we had some education about sex. It was about biology or about heterosexual sex, but I never learned about gay sex. Well, the truth is that 
if we don't receive any affirming messages about something which is completely innate and natural and healthy, it's incredibly invalidating. And if we don't receive messages about a part of ourselves which is natural, we don't know how to relate to it. We don't know how to express it appropriately. And a lot of us receive the complete opposite of the affirming messages. We received messages which were fundamentally abusive. So if I've got a culture where there aren't any role models who are gay on television, who aren't the butts of jokes, or if I don't have any role models who aren't being arrested for cottaging in bathrooms, or if I don't have any role models who aren't dying of avoidable diseases, if I don't have any role models who I'm not told are degenerates or sinful or perverts, who the hell do I look up to? Well, the answer is I don't have anybody. And then we turn to our community. And if you look at any of the advertisements, it's sex, 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 sex. And there isn't anything wrong with sex. But what we're told and led to believe is that, you know, the pinnacle of what it means to be a modern gay man is to be hypersexualized 100% of the time. Well, the truth is, is that even when sex is fantastic, it's pretty redundant. So what else is there? So I come from a background where there are no affirming messages about who I am, or I come from a background where I receive very damaging messages, and then when I look for inspiration in terms of a role model about how to express myself, what it means to be a modern gay man, or how I go about actually creating a relationship, I'm told really poor advice. I'm told that I'm supposed to never be over 30, because anybody over 30 is dead, I'm told that my waist size can never be over 28 inches because I'm obese. I'm told that I have to be white. I have to be youthful forever. I have to earn at least six figures. I have to holiday at the most exotic places that you've never heard of because they're so exclusive. And I have to be able to take every club drug under the sun and be bright-eyed and bushy-tailed for the Monday morning business meeting. Now, I call that the Soho Standard. And the truth is, is that men are literally dying trying to meet it. So we don't have any role models about how to actually create an intimate relationship. And I speak with men hour after hour, day after day, who don't know how to have a conversation, who don't know how to flirt, who think that creating a relationship means putting the dick in somebody's mouth or putting it in their anus. And they couldn't possibly FaceTime with that person. And what is happening is that this is happening at the same time, being coupled with an ideology, which is very poor advice, that if sex is not working in your relationship, well, he's clearly the wrong match for you. And the advice is to ditch that person and to find somebody else. Well, the truth is, is that we've arrived at a point in history where we don't want to work for anything. We're lazy, we're complacent, and if it requires effort, that's too much work. So the reality at hand is that we've arrived at a point where we want instantaneous gratification, particularly when it comes to relationships. The truth is, is that relationships take a tremendous amount of work, and we have to be taught how to have a relationship. And I know firsthand that I didn't learn diddly squat about how to have a relationship in school or in university. I would and agree. had I had done so, 
I would yes. agree with you on that as well because you and I seem to mm-hmm. come from a different time frame, um, children of mm-hmm. the 80s and so forth. Yeah. Um, I'm just curious though, have you mm-hmm. noticed a change in some of the people you see with, um, you know, like mm-hmm. like yourself, there weren't a lot of mm-hmm. role models, but today yeah. wouldn't you say there are a lot mm-hmm. more examples, role models, TV shows, personalities, yeah theater Mm -hmm. that are speaking to, I mean, obviously things like gay marriage and, you know, people having, you know, gay men and and lesbians and transgender. Um, Are there not more examples and positivity out there that you are seeing um, that you could give us a little bit of hope with about um, how maybe, you know, you and I had a different time frame and those before us, but are you seeing changes in that with, with the role models that are out there today? No, is the honest <laughs> no, answer. Okay. no, no, I, I'd love to be able to sit here and say, Oh yes, absolutely. Things are looking rosy. Well, yes, we've got more, uh, more role models, but in my recent article called uh, the stupid game, which you can find on mainly mail, uh, I talk about actually how the people who tend to be vlogging and blogging, they tend to not know their ass from their elbow. And there's a tremendous amount of advice out there. And if you're going to uh, follow any advice, make sure you follow advice from a professional that's experienced who actually seems sane. So when I speak to my younger clients, because not everybody that I work with is in their 30s or 40s or older. I've got a lot of people that are teenagers that come to see me. These teenagers... It's more comfortable for them to have sex with somebody than it is to FaceTime and have a conversation. So I think we've gotten indoctrinated into this idea that we're supposed to be super fluid with our sexuality, open for whatever, whenever, with whomever. And if we have any difficulty at all, any levels of discomfort, well, then that's a problem. And the problem is, is that you've got internalized homophobia. And again, that's a misnomer. And you need to sort yourself out because you have shame. That is overly simplistic and it's not good advice. You know, for a community that aspires to be diverse, it's terribly reductionistic and very narrow-minded. Yes, there's room for expansiveness and expression of sexuality. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm very pro-sex. But I'm also pro-living in alignment with your values. And when I start to talk to men about their values over and over again, the reaction on their face, you can probably guess, is that they haven't a clue what I'm talking about. So when people start to live in, in accordance with their values, they have less stress, they don't have depression anymore, their addictions end, and their relationships increase in terms of the satisfaction drastically. So I think if there were more messages about what I'm speaking to, that I tend to get a lot of flack from even other therapists in my field that are gay therapists, I think that we wouldn't be nearly as lost and confused. I think that there would be more satisfaction in our relationships as a whole. I feel that we would understand why it is difficult for us to connect on a sexual level because most men, and you probably know them, you can have sex quite freely in the beginning of a relationship, but you hit a wall. Well, most men, once they hit that wall, when they no longer desire what they've got, they go elsewhere, they open the relationship, and sometimes that's a great idea to do. But the majority of the times what actually happens is that that is an effect of that trauma which our community has experienced. So I work tirelessly Monday through Friday, 
trying to help men understand this and give them credible techniques to actually help to overcome the trauma so they can figure out what it means on their own terms, how to be a gay man that works for them without running the risk of actually killing themselves in the process and having satisfying relationships. So I really hope that that's the direction that we will move in. But until more people start to question the status quo and really start to kind of rock the boat and say, hey, is there really nothing more than a white party or an orgy or a chill out? Is this all that there is? I'm not particularly optimistic about the future. Well, one of the ways that you go about helping people that you wrote in an article that I found very Mm -hmm. humorous and interesting was, uh, what is your penis trying to say? Yes, I loved writing that one. I like. <laughs> You're right. Um, you, mm-hmm. can, you say you can help yourself to unravel some of the mystery of your own sexual functioning. If you just imagine that your penis could talk, you can help yourself to unravel some of the mystery of your own sexual functioning. If you mm-hmm. imagine that your penis could talk, what would he say about the type of people you are sleeping with? What would he say about mm-hmm. how quickly you decide to put him into dark, tight places? Um, you say, what consequences um, of, of not thinking about how we feel about our sexual experiences? Um, you go on, um, but essentially... Um, you know, what is it about our penises that is, is that one of the questions that you first ask some of your, your clients or patients, what is mm-hmm. your penis saying and, and what can we, what are some of the things we can ask our, our, our penis? Good question. Uh, if I ask that first thing right off the bat during a consultation, I'd go out of business. So <laughs> I have to make sure that I don't kind of perpetuate the ideology that, you know, all therapists are crazy themselves. You know, certainly right. I'll be honest. I do know some people that I wouldn't take a dead dog to, but I've got to build up that relationship with a client before all actually land that question because for a lot of European, particularly my British people, they tend to be quite guarded about being silly, if you will. They're quite reserved right. as a whole. And again, that's a sort of difference between a European gay and a North American gay. My, my North American gays, my Americans, I could come out really early on with that and say that sort of outlandish question and they'd laugh and maybe engage with it because they tend to have a more, I think, open-mindedness when it comes to mental health because in North America, we're technically decades ahead of Europe and the rest of the well, the world, really, when it comes to viewpoint on mental health. But if we start to look at, you know, this joke, oh, men are always thinking with their dicks. Well, yes, that is actually true because we are animals. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, we are evolved to a point where we are consciously aware that we exist. Right. And just because we have an urge, it doesn't mean that we have to follow it. And sometimes it is important to follow. But if we listen to our bodies, if we start to kind of personify a part of ourselves that oftentimes a lot of the men that I work with, they're very in conflict with their penis. You know, he's too small. He's ugly. I don't like his foreskin. Uh, he's bald now because he was circumcised. You know, he's not doing what I want. The men that I work with have this impression, and it's largely due to pornography, that they're going to be erect and massive and ready to go for hours and hours at any point, and it's unrealistic. So when their bodies don't actually work like a machine, they're terrified, or they've got a tremendous amount of shame, and then they end up in my office. Well, by 
having them consider, well, maybe there's a benefit or a level of utility to this problem. Maybe my body's trying to tell me something. It helps them to consider it from a different angle. Because coming into the office, you know, I've got a problem, I'm broken, there's an issue. None of my friends talk about losing their erection just at the point of penetration or shooting the low too quickly or whatever else it is. You know, men tend to brag, particularly over brunch, about their sexual exploits over the weekend. We are not as honest as we really need to be with one another, and that's a problem. So getting them to start to think about the possibility that there could be some good things about this it's a totally different point of view. Now, all of a sudden, there might be a good thing about me losing my erection. And what might that be? Well, when I think about it, I don't really know why my boyfriend never texts me back. Or actually, I'm not really sure if we are boyfriends. Or I haven't heard from him in a couple of days, but he comes over once in a while and he expects me to stand at his attention and fuck his brain down. Well, if I'm not really feeling satisfied, if I don't feel respected, if I don't feel secure, my body isn't going to work how I want it to. And we don't learn this fact in sex education if we are lucky enough to get it. And that means... You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand, and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, (laughs) I could really use Current. (laughs) I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech that we've got a lot of men that are running for Vialis, the Vichos, the Alice, whatever it is, a quick fix, when it actually doesn't fix it a lot of times. It just actually creates a dependence. And if we had a better sex education, if we actually considered that maybe my body is fine, because if I can masturbate and I can get an adequate erection and I can go to places that I want to go, biologically, I think it's safe to say I'm okay. But if it happens in the context of an intimate encounter with somebody else, another human being who obviously has feelings and isn't a screen, now it's harder. Well, that's a problem around intimacy. And you're going to have to look at it from a different point of view outside of considering that you're broken. And that's why I wrote the article. I mean, in some ways, it makes so much sense because, you know, blood mm-hmm. just goes to your, your from your mind to your penis. And it's a very basic yeah. um, thing that happens in our bodies. But mm-hmm. behind that, if you, if it's not getting hard or if there is or certain things, there's a whole, mm-hmm. like you mentioned, psychological things that can be going on that need to mm-hmm. be, could be, need to be unraveled to get maybe to the root cause and exactly. and so I think that's I I liked how you um, how that whole process and we should ask ourselves that question. Um, one of the things you also write about um, that another mm-hmm. I had another um, author uh, Cameron York who wrote about this too. Chem sex. Um, yeah. He wrote a trilogy of books and he was on the show recently uh, and um, okay. talking about being addicted. Um, through these parties of chem sex and he thought that in the UK and other places as well like South Africa that um, Mm -hmm. things like chem sex parties and um, 
the drugs that are associated with these parties have gotten to an all-time high and are really um, a major, major concern right now. Would you agree with that? Mm-hmm. And, and why did you write the book on chemsex? I'm going to disagree that it's at an all-time high. I don't think it is at an all-time high yet. Okay, good. <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's getting worse. Okay. And it started for me, you know, I write uh, about it in my book. When I was in my early 20s, that's when I developed uh, my first issues with drugs, which fortunately I overcame. So I never had a full-blown problem with chemsex. I had a problem with drugs. Got it. So you know the expression, it takes one to know one? Well, that's exactly what you get when I'm working with these men from around the world that have a chemsex addiction issue, is that they're trying to kid a kidder, which is one of the reasons why I think I can work so effectively with this issue, because I can see right through the bullshit. And I think it is getting worse. I think it's getting worse because I'm contacted now daily for men who have been in a, a relationship for usually on average, I would say it's at least a decade, and one person or both people have become addicted to it. And it isn't just in the major metropolitan areas anymore. It's not just confined to LA or Chicago or New York. It's in London, it's in Paris, it's in Berlin, it's in Beirut, it's in the countryside as well true. The fact that we've got an ability to log online and to go on Grindr, Scruff, or Hornet, or whatever app is in vogue at that moment, there's a total, you know, language and culture to this, which is glorified as well, too. And it's perpetuated in porn. You can log online now and see it on Pornhub. And this is what men think they're supposed to emulate. This is what they think is okay. You know, nobody starts off with an addiction, full-blown. They have to work up towards it, technically. And when there are genetic or environmental predispositions, that accelerates at a tremendously fast pace. And the drugs that are available, at least in London and this part of the world, when I'm working with my clients, they're completely different than what they were 10, 14 years ago. It's changed. And now when I'm working with younger clients, I've got to teach them as they're trying to find their way in the world and figure out what it means for them to be modern gay men as well, too. Teaching them about, well, did you ask him if he parties? Does he use cams? This needs to be a standard question because so many people online now, in London particularly, they use and they use in the recreational sense or they've got a full-blown problem and they don't even realize it yet or they do have a problem and they know it, but it's standardized. So I think it's getting worse. Wow. And I wrote the book because I'm tired of seeing men engage with chemicals that are not regulated and they're overdosing and they're dying. They're being drugged, they're being raped, they're being murdered, they're being chopped up and thrown into church graveyards. That was a case that happened two years ago here in London. Wow. So these drugs are not anything to fuck around with. They're super serious. And most men don't know the truth about chemsex, which is where I got the title of the book from. And it's really written from a place of concern because I'm not telling you, you know, don't do this or otherwise your life will be ruined. I'm telling you, hey, did you know? And these are some cases that you might relate to because these men are also professional, educated, affluent, cultured, attractive, intelligent, and they lose absolutely everything. 
and I see multiple cases a day now at this point. And I've got couple after couple coming in to see me trying to save their marriage because of the CAMs and the effects of these drugs on the psychology. I have men who get lost in the corridor outside my office because they become so detached from reality because of the neurological damage of these drugs that they can't even find their way from the bathroom to my office, which is about maybe six feet away. So the long-term effects can be detrimental as well that people don't even think about. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And they're permanent as well, too. You can lose the ability to actually experience joy. Just let that sink in for a hot second. So that means nothing in your world resonates in a way where you feel pleasure because you've got a permanent damage to your neurology, which impairs your brain's ability to produce an adequate level of neurotransmitters, which what makes you feel pleasure. So that means sex teaches to become enjoyable, chocolate cake, walks in the park, spending time with your friends and family, etc. That can be permanent. You can absolutely experience permanent inability to actually experience sexual functioning in a healthy way without having to depend upon some medications. There are long-term health effects as well too, like kidney damage or kidney failure, damage to your circulatory system as well. I mean, the list goes on and on. And one of the reasons why I made sure that I put all the ingredients in the drugs in the book is to help remind people about what they're really choosing to put into their bodies. Most men don't know that they're putting battery acid into their bodies when they're doing Tina, but that's exactly what they're choosing to do. So I wrote it because we need to be educated and we need to be aware of the dangers. Now, would you say that this is Mm -hmm. an an addiction or is it more we become, Mm -hmm. it's a mind sort of addiction that we just become, you know, addicted to the mm-hmm. sex that we're having because the sex is we've convinced ourselves and maybe it is the uh-huh. sex is so good but is it really like an addiction like alcohol or other yeah. hard drugs like that that, that question doesn't require any debate whatsoever. You know, without a shadow of a doubt, this is absolutely an addiction. These drugs produce a synthetic release of dopamine in the brain. And dopamine is what makes us feel good. So whenever it's a sunny day, you've got dopamine. You're eating chocolate cake, you've got dopamine, assuming that you eat chocolate cake. And when there's sex, guess what? Again, there's a release of dopamine. Well, these drugs that are being used release a tremendous amount of dopamine all at once, which is why Chemsex feels so amazing. And anything else outside of it pales in comparison because there's a tsunami of dopamine flowing through the nervous system all at once. And that becomes standardized for men. So sex in and of itself, even without chems, that's absolutely addictive. Same thing for pornography, same thing for anything that would actually release dopamine and cause you to become habituated to that level of dopamine. That's why the medical community, anybody reputable for that matter, has seen addiction as a medical illness since approximately the 1950s. So whether you want to label it an addiction or not, I think we can all agree that this is a problem. And it's a problem in part because we don't understand it to its full capacity. We're not educated about it. And we've got this ideology, which I think is quite dangerous, that, you know, if I want to go out and have a good time, I'm going to do a little G, dance my ass off. I'm going to do a little methadone and maybe some ketamine. And there's nothing to it. It's just having fun. It's harmless, right? 
Well, that's how most of my clients got hooked on it and they lose their jobs. I just had a man get fired this week. I have people who lose their lives. I've had people who have held their fiancés in their arms as they died because they gave them too much gene. Yes. So death and destruction is a very real thing when it comes to addiction and it is nothing to trifle with. So I think we've got a massive problem on our hands. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit also mm-hmm. about sure. conversion parties, and I know you've written about it yeah. before. I know you've gotten some flack for writing I about indeed, yeah. conversion parties being parties where people go to to actually be. Uh, um, what's the actual word? Were you zero? Sero convert to become HIV positive. And I know for a lot of people yes. listening, this might be an, an incredibly crazy concept because why on earth, particularly mm-hmm. now with things like PrEP, would mm-hmm. anybody want to become HIV positive? And are mm-hmm. you, is this something that's still going on today? Like I just said, with in a prep era where you can yep. have sex with HIV positive men if and beyond prep and you know at least a lot of people that we talk to on this show seem to think yeah. uh, even though prep is meant to be used with condoms, but yes, exactly. um, can you talk a little bit about are you still seeing these parties occur? Yes. <laughs> I want to be able very much to sit here and say, absolutely not. The whole thing was a charade. Ha, ha, ha. I forgot you. No, it's real. I first wrote about uh, bug chasing for my master's thesis. And my master's thesis, I think, was over 50,000 words. It's over 200 pages. I never published it. Because at that time, I was afraid of the backlash. And that was in 2007. I first became aware of this. And I did a qualitative and quantitative study where I interviewed participants that I found online on various websites who fetishized and were actively pursuing HIV. Now, that was before PrEP and PEP at that time. And now, still, you can log online and you can see videos where men are fetishizing or engaging in a fantasy or the very real pursuit of becoming HIV positive. Now, these types of men tend to not present for therapy frequently, but sometimes they do. And one of the first questions that I got from a reader of Alpha Tribe magazine was, my boyfriend wants me to go to a cell conversion party with him because he wants to give me his HIV. What should I do? And out of all the questions that I got, that was one that I picked and one that I wanted to write about because there are a lot of people who don't want to believe that it still happens. But what we're talking about is a mental health issue. And with all the medications and advances and all the options that are available to us today, I do believe that mental health will be in all of our lives for a very long time. So that means that despite these interventions and the option of not having to have HIV, really, There are some people who still think that it's a great idea, but they're facilitated by a lot of irrational fear. They've got a lot of self-esteem issues. They're dealing with some existential issues. They think that it's going to create a deeper sense of intimacy within the relationships. They're seeking uh, a type of power, if you will, because if I know that I've got it and I lie to you and maybe my viral load's quite high, and maybe you're kind of hitting this with the condoms or with the prep, I could pass it technically. 
and they get off on knowing that they have this power. So there's a tremendous amount of statism that's involved with this as well, too. It's very unhealthy. From power to and those that want that, to actually get it to be, say, like their partners. Yes, I can see that. Yeah, exactly. Or the people that don't know as well, too. I mean, there's also the fantasy, and I think there is a sort of... Uh, do you remember... Uh, are you familiar with Dr. Seuss? Yes, of course. Yeah. Good. Okay. All right. I, I've got to ask. Sometimes, <laughs> I, sometimes it might be in now. I never know. Okay. Uh, we're just talking for the first time, actually. So, do you remember the story of the Sneetches? Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, Sneetches were the ones with the birds, with stars, I think it goes with stars upon stars, stars in the bellies. Some had and some didn't. Well, for some of the men that are drawn to this, there's an ideology that they succumb to that, you know, if I'm HIV positive, I'll belong to something. Because they feel so disenfranchised and disconnected from the community as a whole. They're so desperate to fit in somewhere that they're willing to fetishize and pursue becoming HIV positive. So they've got the same sort of ideology that, you know, who I am is insufficient. I need to be more than what I am. Just like the story of the Smeeches. Would you say that that's also? Happens. Would you say that mm-hmm. that's also something within the community at large in hmm. general that wanting Which to bit? have that certain body type or oh. or you know <laughs> that chest to get those yeah. chest implants or to look uh-huh. younger? So you know we 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 do a lot of you know Botox and certain things like that to make ourselves oh, you know. Would you say that's a sort of a similar yeah. analogy to Dr. Seuss and? and wanting to fit in? Oh, it's, it's a good question. I laugh just because I, I get interviewed about this all the time as well, too. Uh, in body image issues is one of the areas of specialization that, you know, personally I've struggled with and have fortunately overcome. But it goes back to that Soho standard, that ideology that we need to look a certain way. It also ties into subconscious and sometimes conscious issues around death anxiety, which is about as existential as it really gets. And when people don't have an adequate understanding for what facilitates their desire to modify their body, a lot of times it will be on a subconscious level and they will be afraid about dying or what might happen after death or they've got this idea that if I look a certain way that that's going to increase the likelihood that I'll get laid or I'll find a boyfriend or if I do have a relationship that's going to keep their interest and it'll keep the passion alive. And we're also, you know, we're great consumers particularly Americans, were raised to buy, 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 buy. Right. And we do. So we're getting this message over and over and over again that you've got to look a certain way and act a certain way and be a certain way. And going back to the point that I was making earlier in our conversation, Steve, about our community as a whole being traumatized, trauma creates this ideology psychologically that I am inferior, that there's something fundamentally broken within me I am not safe, I am damaged, I am lesser than you. And now I've got this advertisement in a magazine or online or the side of a bus, depending upon where you might live, that says, hey, get a facelift, get Botox, do this, get that, and all your cares will melt away. It's not true. Right. Sometimes it can improve things, but 
Because we are a vulnerable population, because we haven't nearly, I think, spoken often enough about the wounding that we have experienced and about the practical things that we can actually do to empower ourselves to heal, which is a choice, and to move on in a constructive way, which frees us from a lot of this garbage. We're suckers. We buy a hook, line, and sinker. And we shell out tens of thousands of dollars and oftentimes are feeling just as empty, if not more so, after the procedure and the bandages have been removed. Wow. What are some of the things, though, that we could, you would Mm -hmm. offer advice to? For those of us that can't afford Mm -hmm. to see somebody like yourself, um, a psychologist and sexologist. um, Yeah. I'm not as expensive as you might think, though. I'm actually quite reasonably priced. (laughs) We'll we'll put all that info um, (laughs) soon in a minute. But um, but not everybody can afford private health care. Everybody can. And for those listening Mm -hmm. that might hear um, a bleakness to our culture out there currently, and it may not be getting better, unfortunately, um, or me, you never know, but what are some of the yeah, things that we can do that just some mm-hmm. quick tips or some to analyze ourselves? I know you talk about, you know, ask yeah. talk to our penis. Um, is that one yeah. of the things we can do? <laughs> Have a conversation with our penis? I think there's actually quite a bit that can be done. I think there are a tremendous amount of good blogs out there or good websites that are devoted to mental health. Certainly, you know, the American Psychological Association, the British Psychological Association. Uh, I write extensively as well, too. Dan Savage is a great author as well. I think that we do have some people who know what they're talking about. So if you don't have a penny to your name, you're not screwed. There's hope. And I think by accessing these sources, I think that there's quite a bit that we can do to empower ourselves. And education, 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 I think is probably the best thing that we can actually do. Because there are going to be things that we are aware that we know, things that we're aware that we don't know. And then there are things that we don't know that we don't know. And by going into this sort of process of educating ourselves, by reading self-help books and talking to people and being honest about what it's really like to be who we are, and feel the feelings that we feel and acknowledging that actually as an adult i don't always have the answer do you what we'll find out very quickly is that actually we have more in common than we do dissimilar and there are people out there who are willing to give the time of day or extend a helping hand or to listen or point us in a direction that might actually be fruitful so i think by giving ourselves permission to be humble, to remember that we're all human beings, to go to Barnes and Nobles or online and download a Kindle if you can't be bothered to go all the way across town if there is one still open in your neighborhood. I think there's a tremendous amount of education out there available. I would and agree. by recognizing that it is a problem, I mean, that is a huge step forward as well, too. So I think just educating yourself and making yourself aware that actually I do have a problem or maybe this could be improved, possibly seeking out a professional in their area that might offer a complimentary consultation. Many of my colleagues, such as myself, we do do that. That is a way in which we get back to the community. And those are wonderful opportunities to get addresses, names, organizations that might actually be able to provide complimentary or free counseling within the area or literature that actually might speak to that exact issue without needing that person to come to therapy. So off the top of my head, that's what I'd say. Wonderful. Justin, how would people find you and um, and maybe follow your blog or can you list some of those things real quick? 
Yes, okay. So if people want to find me, they can look for me on Google. So just Google Justin and then the last name D-U-W-E. Just four letters is all you need. And you'll find my website. You'll also find my articles in Alpha Tribe magazine. And you'll also find my articles on a website which is called mainlymail.com. And if you want to follow me, you can look for me on Facebook. I have a professional psychotherapy page where I post things regularly there, thoughts of the day, things that are funny, conversation topics, and a lot of the articles that I'll put there as well too. So if you'd like to learn more about my services, you're more than welcome to email me. And just because you're not in London doesn't mean that we couldn't actually speak. I do work with clients internationally because of course we've got FaceTime and Skype now because technically we don't have to be in one place in order to actually be with one another. Case in point, I'm in London and you're in New York. So those would be the ways in which people would actually be able to get a hold of me. Well, Justin Duve, thank you so much for being on Talk About Gay Sex. This has been incredibly enlightening and I hope you'll come back. Oh, I'd love to come back. Thank you very much for your time, Steve. This has been a lot of fun. So all the best at the show, best of luck, and do ring me soon. Will do. Thank you. Talk About Gay Sex is produced in New York City. Follow us on all social media at Talk About Gay Sex on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. And stay tuned for our Patreon page, the membership site where you'll get extra content like our dark and dirty after show, plus more sexy content. Until next time, we'll see you with another sexy episode of Talk About Gay Sex.